You can turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 49. We'll be continuing where I ended up leaving off last week. And I stand before you a trembling man. It is a scary thing, not because of you guys, I'm not concerned that you guys will uh, mock me or, you know, get on to me if I mess up because I didn't have much preparation time. It is a fearful thing for me to approach a text and bring it before you in this pulpit and not feeling as though I have mastered the text and not feeling as though the text has mastered me. And so we go forth <laughs> this morning with me preaching, um, trusting the Lord and trusting Matt's notes that he had prepared. We do not take lightly, Matt or I, what we do here on Sunday mornings. Preaching the word is a heavy task, um, one that we don't just happen, trip, and fall into on Sunday mornings. And so I would ask that you guys would pray for me as I have been praying for you all. Um, and we'll go on. And so, as I've already said, Matt is sick. Um, and so I am here this morning. And as I have joked, and as I will continue to joke, for the rest of the day at least, I'm convinced that Matt is just uh, not wanting to preach these texts. <laughs> Last week and this week are both, man, um, heavy. Moab was one long judgment, okay? Now, we have short judgments, but there's five of them, <laughs> okay? And so we are here this morning, um, again, ready to get dirty, ready to trek through the mud, ready to witness the judgment of God upon sin for those that deserve it. And so we go. So to review, Egypt, Philistia, uh, Moab, and now the ends of the earth are who we are observing in judgment. Our theme has, is going to continue from the past few weeks. God, God's announcement of judgment reaches the ends of the earth this morning, and yet redemption echoes still, okay? And there are five questions for us as we hear redemption echo. The treasures of God perverted, the Ammonites in one through six, the safety of God rejected, Edom, in 7 through 22, the need for God unrecognized, Damascus, 23 through 27, the security of God disregarded, Kedar and Hazor, 28 through 33, and the reach of God belittled, Elam, 34 through verse 39. And so as we enter into our text, pray with me. And then we'll observe our first question. Father, be with us this morning. 
convict our hearts. I pray that as we observe these nations being judged, judged harshly, as we observe you grinding them to dust, I pray that our hearts would be convicted. I pray that we would see your minimized judgment against sin here. What took place upon these nations was only a foretaste of what you poured out upon Christ. So, Father, I pray that we would, for those that do not know you, that we would see the judgment of God this morning and that we would flee to the cross. For those of us that do know you, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged even as they are broken, knowing again that all that was experienced by these nations was nothing compared to what you poured out in your cup of wrath upon Christ. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we get to pray. Amen. And so we'll look at our first question. The treasures of God perverted the Ammonites in verses 1 through 6. I'll read, and it should be on the screen. Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in the cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah, Rabbah and the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages shall be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is laid waste. Cry out, O daughters of Rabbah, put on sackcloth, lament, and run to and fro amongst the hedges. For Milcom shall go into exile with his priests and his officials. Why do you boast in your valleys, O faithless daughter, who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring terror upon you, declares the Lord God of hosts. From all who are around you, and you shall be driven out every man straight before him, with none to gather the fugitives. But afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. We despise the treasures that we have been given as we covet the treasures of another. Some history. Gad settled on the far side of the Jordan River in Numbers 32. Their land changed hands a number of times before Gad was deported by Assyria, opening the land to the Ammonites. Okay? In Jeremiah's day, as you remember, the Ammonites played a key role in murdering Gedaliah in chapter 40 and 41. Milcom, also known as, and maybe more familiar known as Molech was a horrific god worshipped through child sacrifice a pagan god where men and women would offer their children at the altar of this god he is mentioned as the invader who dispossesses God's people uh, of their lands but God did not forget his people who were 
dispossessed, stolen from, right? The judgment that befalls Ammon ensures that Israel will dispossess those who dispossess him. You who stole from me shall have what was stolen, stolen, right? This is the type of wordplay and language that we see in verse 2. Now, looking at perverse treasures, okay? Perverted treasures is our first subpoint this morning. When God's people were weak, Ammon hijacked the treasures intended for Israel's use. These were gifts given to God's people by God himself that were stolen by foreign nations. We can make application broadly here that those that would rob the people of God of what God intended for his glory will have what was intended for God's glory stolen from them. But what are these things intended for God's glory? To broaden this application, have you considered that language was given to man for the glory of God? And that man used language to come together against God at Babel. Have you considered that the materials found on this earth, that which builds cities, are gifts given to man? And that cities have been built against our God, as we see here this morning. Culture itself, family structure, a father and a mother bearing a child, these are gifts given to man from God that we have taken and used against our God. And they will be taken back. Our second subpoint this morning is promised restoration. So we see here that our treasure in Christ, every blessing in the spiritual, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, our only hope of restoration, our only hope for the only hope for the Ammonite, right? God will restore their fortunes. And yet their fortunes were gained stealing them from God's people. How good is our God that he even decides in his grace, in his mercy, though these people do not deserve it, to restore the fortunes to Ammonites who stole their fortunes to begin with. Isn't that like you and I? We're going to continue seeing this truth unfolded throughout the chapter. That none of us deserve a promise of restoration. And we're going to see that some of these cities don't receive one. The safety of God rejected is our second question and our second point this morning. And this is looking at Edom in verses 7 through 22. Esau... 
the father of Edom, if you will, represents the fundamental depravity of man, we fear our stomach more than we fear God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but Esau did not fear God. He feared hunger, and he took things into his own hands. What is sin but taking the creation of God and doing what is right in our own eyes rather than trusting the one that invented the game? Some history here. Jacob and Esau, as I've alluded to, um, there was jealousy there, right? Jacob, (laughs) he ends up tricking Esau, right? This child of promise, Jacob, of whom Christ would eventually be born of his line, he didn't receive the blessing from his father by normal means. He snuck the birthright right out of Esau's, right um, out from under his nose. The birthright was exchanged and consequences came. More recently, Edom was cut off or they cut off the Israelite fugitives when they were under attack. Okay, so in a parallel passage in Obadiah, okay, so Jeremiah is prophesying, he's preaching, and Obadiah is prophesying at the same time. What we see in Obadiah 11 through 14, it'll be on the screen. We'll go ahead and look at it we'll see that the Edomites barred the Israelite people from fleeing. And they, uh, they enjoyed it. So read with me, Obadiah 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, and the day that strangers carried off his wealth, Jacob, okay, again, this is referring to all of God's people, because the Edomites, the son of Esau, that God is using through Obadiah, the language of Jacob, to say God's promised people, Israel and Judah, okay? On that day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day your brother, the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice at the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of their distress. They were, they were dancing. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his, dis, uh, his survivors in the day of distress. We see in these people, our first subpoint, those who exchanged divine wisdom for earthly wisdom. Esau saw his actions as safety, right? Esau was about to die. I'm so hungry I could die, said every kid ever when they're at all hungry, right? He filled his belly as it roared, believing that the consequences were well worth the purchase, 
right? Take my birthright. I don't care. If I don't eat right now, I am going to fall over dead. What a fool, right? What a child. He and his descendants exchanged the divine for what? For immediate gratification. We mock and laugh at Esau. But how often do we listen to our bellies? Edom filled their bellies every time they hungered. If they wanted it, they took it, heedless of the consequences to come. And look at Obadiah 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. The Edomites delighted in the destruction of God's people. So God delights in their destruction as well. As you have done, it shall be done to you. How terrifying a thought, right? Consider these words as they're spoken to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Consider if all your failures returned on your head before God in judgment. Our second subpoint. The people of Edom exchanged divine protection for human protection. Looking at Jeremiah 49, 16, the horror you inspire has deceived you. And the pride of your heart, you who live in the clefts of the rock, who hold the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as the eagles, I will bring you down from there, declares the Lord. Those who were a horror to other nations trusted their own forces and their own defenses, and they faced in horror as the forces which conquered all their previous enemy were nothing against the incoming force as their defenses, as they repelled every charging enemy to date, these defenses were being broken. They trusted in their strength and they were deceived because a stronger nation brought forth by God himself had come for them. They lived in the cleft of the rock and they built their, their cities high as the eagle's nest they had the high ground, but they were deceived by human protection. What divine protection did they abandon? God supplied one true rock, the rock of ages, cleft for me. Our high places that we retreat to cannot be overcome by human hands. Christ himself is the cleft, is the rock, is the defense, is the sword that they abandon. 
to create their own shabby altar. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deed shall return on your own head. Consider, it, consider in Jesus this statement of judgment and terror is reversed and becomes a statement of rejoicing and a statement of hope. Consider that in Jesus it reads, as you have done, it has been done in Jesus. Rather than you doing, Jesus has done. His righteous deeds shall be returned on your head. Your deeds will be washed away, and the only one who did right, his rightness, his righteousness, will be credited to you. So you stand here today as sinners saved by grace, deserving the judgment poured out to Edom, yet reaping the benefits deserved of Jesus. Why? Who are we to receive such grace? Because Jesus stood righteous at every point of the law, deserving the benefits and blessings of obedience, yet he reaped the end of all of our sins. He did right, and yet our sin was heaped upon his head. He bore God's wrath for sin to the last drop of the cup and cried out, what? It is finished. And yet, there is no promised restoration here in our text for Edom. Does that bother you? The Bible is clear that Jacob, that God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Looking at Romans 10 through 13, and I'll read. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. And to take that even further, Paul continues in verse 13 and says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Does that bother you? But we'll continue. Our next question is the need for God unrecognized. Looking at Damascus, verses 23 through 27. Concerning Damascus, I'll read, starting in verse 23. Hamath and Arpad are confounded, for they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. Damascus has become feeble. She has turned to flee, and panic has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken hold of her as a woman in labor, as we looked at last week. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Therefore, her young men shall fall into her squares, and all her soldiers shall be destroyed in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will kindle a fire 
and the walls of Damascus, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Our first sub-point is the helpless state of Damascus. Melt, panic, feebleness, sorrow, labor pains. These are the ways that Damascus was described by God in his judgment. I consider, he's in here, the state of Asher when he recognizes that he's about to be disciplined by dad. There's a moment of realization that can be clearly seen in his eyes as he is in the middle of whatever rebellion he's doing, and then it hits him, right? You can see maybe defiance, rebellion, anger, whining, whatever it is, you can see it start to melt away, right? As he recognizes there's a force coming that I cannot stop. <laughs> Cedarview, we are but children running around and playing in this playground that God created. We're running around rebellious, defiant, and like children, we have gotten away with it to this point. The people of Damascus got away with it for a time, but then dad came home, and they could do nothing but stand, melt, flee, attempt to and just take the discipline, the punishment, the judgment that was coming to them. Just as Asher's resistance is futile before his father's discipline, so our resistance is futile before the Heavenly Father. I pray that you would melt this morning before God, that you would recognize the futility of your rebellion, that you would see yourselves through the eyes of a young boy named Asher who's about to get disciplined by dad. I pray that the weight of that, that the fear of that, and it would be a healthy fear that you recognize that you are not the power of this world. Our second sub-point looking at Damascus, is hoping in vain. City of my joy. Damascus was a famed city and well thought of in the known world. Even from God's perspective, though he required judgment, he apparently grieved over the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. Here they are stripped of their joy and their youth. Kidner, again, according to Matt's notes, suggests that from verse 27, in God's patience, the disaster was long overdue. And Kidner states, the mills of God grind slowly. Mm. Praise God. 
that he is a patient father. Right? How swift would his judgment or does his judgment deserve to be? And yet he holds his hand back and is patient with us on this, in this world. This is a secondary application to the intention of the passage. But as I was preparing this morning, I was struck and I was moved by the implications of my own shortcomings, of my own sin. Weep and mourn with me. That our sin is such that God must ruin things that bring him joy. We were created by God to reflect him on this earth. We were created likewise to create. To build cities. Adam and Eve were not meant to stay in the garden. They were meant to expand. To have dominion over all the earth and subdue it. To build cities with the gifts that God had given them to the glory of God. He created us to create. And he delights himself in our creation just as a father hangs a child's art on the fridge. As bad as it may be. What depth of sin that we would take fridge art created for God's glory and use it to sin against him so that he must burn that which he delights in. How sinful am I? How wicked are we that we twist what God has called good for our own purposes and for evil? And we have, again, no promised restoration, our last sub-point. I'll ask you again, does that bother you? Our next question, security of God disregarded? Looking at Kedar and Hazor, verses 28 through 33, I will read concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, struck down. Thus says the Lord, rise up and advance against Kedar, destroy the people of the east. Their tents and their flocks shall be taken, their curtains and all their goods. Their camels shall be led away from them, and the men shall cry to them, Terror on every side. Flee, wander far away, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazor, declares the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has made a plan against you and formed a purpose against you. Rise up, advance against a nation at ease that dwells securely, declares the Lord. That no gates or bars that dwells alone, their camels shall become plunder, their herds of livestock a spoil. I will scatter to every wind those who cut corners of their hair. This was just a practice that these people would have done. And I will bring their calamity from every side of them, declares the Lord. 
Hazor shall become a haunt of jackals, an everlasting waste. No man shall dwell there, no man shall sojourn in her. Nebuchadnezzar is explicitly named here as the instrument of God's judgment, right? He's been implied through all of these, but here he is named specifically. So our first subpoint dwelt securely. They have everything they need in a remote desert area. Tents, flocks, curtains, goods, camels. They don't even need to lock their doors at night. They live a carefree life with little threat to their way of life. Like Moab and the rich young man in Luke 12, they scoffed at any other measure of security. A likely attitude among these people, it can never happen here, right? We live in a Kedar and Hazor type of area, right? It can never happen in Olive Branch. That's for other places. It sounds much more like the people of Judah before the Babylonian invasion. Imagine being the people of God, twisting the promises of God to say, (laughs) no one's going to overtake us. Do you know who I am? I'm God's people, right? And God said, yeah, you are. (laughs) And there's this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. How puffed up and proud are we here today that we genuinely believe our insurance companies when they say that they cover acts of God? Cedarview, our God doesn't just work in nature. Here, he raises up foreign nations, foreign powers to carry out his judgment. Do you think that Nebuchadnezzar became powerful in his own right, in spite of a holy and sovereign God? No. Every bit of might given to Nebuchadnezzar was given him by God himself to carry out exactly what God desired in his world. So what makes you feel secure? Is it the Lord? Is it his promises? Or are you, like me, a Kedarite and a Hazarite in how we trust the things around us more than we trust the God who created them? Our second subpoint is that these people were dispersed sovereignly. For what reason does God state his judgment against Kedar and Hazor? Did you hear anything? Cedarby, we see here the abundant destruction of a people who did nothing. Hmm. Scatter to every wind hints at the judgment of the final nation in verse 36 that we'll get to in a moment. 
But this scattering to every wind is to say that I will beat, break, and grind down these people to dust and throw them every which way so that north, south, east, and west, the winds will carry their remains across the earth. They will be scattered. They will be made to be no more. Do you realize, Cedarview, that doing nothing is evil in the sight of the Lord? God, help us that we must not only not sin, but we must also fulfill all righteousness. That is the state of man. We can't just go around not sinning. There is an obligation of man, mankind to do, to fulfill righteousness. And these people did not. They did nothing, and they were destroyed for it, and rightly so. Doing nothing is sin and failure, just like an employee who doesn't work must get fired. Well, I didn't do anything, manager. Yeah, that's the point. <laughs> that's why you're here in my office. Goodbye. Cedarview, we need. Jesus, not only have we done wrong, but we are responsible for those things that we have not done correct. And yet, there was no promised restoration for these people either. Does that bother you? Now we'll look at Elam. The next question, the reach of God, is it belittled? Elam, verses 34 through 39. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might. I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven. I will scatter them across all those winds, and there will be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. I will terrify Elam before their enemies, before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger declares the Lord. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And I will set my throne in Elam and destroy their king and officials, declares the Lord. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. As a distant nation, some might think that they would fall outside of God's judging acts. Yet God's judgment reaches to the ends of the earth. And this statement makes that clear. Along with Kedar and Hazor, he will use the four winds from the four quarters of the earth to scatter this nation. There is, however, promised restoration, our only subpoint here. Matthew 24, 31 says that he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. 
fascinating language, right? Where is this fulfilled? This statement in Matthew 24 through 31. Well, we'll conclude as we look at that, okay? Our theme this morning was God's announcements of judgment reach the ends of the earth, and yet redemption echoes still. There are five questions for us as we heard redemption echo. Are the, tr- the treasures of God perverted? Looking at the Ammonites. The safety of God rejected? Edom, 7 through 22. The need for God unrecognized? Looking at Damascus. The security of God disregarded? Gadar and Hazor. The reach of God belittled? Looking at Elam. But there were some promised restoration and not others in our text. Not just this morning, but in the past few weeks. As I asked repeatedly this morning, are you bothered by the fact that there was no promised restoration given to these people? That God would destroy them and there was no hope offered to them? Does it bother you? In your heart of hearts, I would challenge you to ask yourself, why? Why does it bother you that sinners are rightly judged by a holy God with no hope of redemption? Does God have any obligation to restore mankind in his sin? If grace is required, is it grace at all? Grace must be free to be grace. We must bow before God's election of grace however he sees fit. Look, we have disagreed amongst Christians (laughs) for all time. God has not clearly, black and white, completely revealed how he works this stuff out. And yet we must be in agreement regardless of how we fall in terms of God's sovereignty in salvation. We must bow before God's election of grace, however he sees fit to do it. Hopefully I've pressed on a sensitive area as we talk about this passage, because I'm convinced that that's the intention of this passage this morning, is to make the reader and the hearer uncomfortable. Now that I've pressed on the sore spot, let me conclude with a better flavor in our mouths as I point out a measure of hope in this sovereign plan of God. Notice the outworking of judgment described in Jeremiah. Now this might be the only time in my life that I use maps to communicate any point that I give because I went to public school and my geography skills prove it, okay? But if Wesley could bring up the first map, I haven't tried this before, so we're gonna, uh, hey, look at that! We got a map, 
Now, you guys probably don't know what you're looking at, just like I didn't, so let's figure it out. The teal blue at the top there was Damascus, okay? The orange below it was the Ammonites. The purple was Moab, what I discussed last week. And the yellow at the bottom was Edom. Now, if you look to the left of those, to the west of those, you see the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Okay? Now, we'll go to the next slide. Look at that. Two maps in a row that worked. Now, you're not going to be able to read that. I couldn't find anything that made it bigger. So, the word right there in the middle, okay, in the very center of the map, that says Kadar. So, these other nations were immediate neighbors of God's people, and they were receiving the judgment of God, okay? But God doesn't stop at Kedar and Hazor, right? He goes to Elam, which is the orange to the far right of that map. Now, to the far left of that map, not that far, there you go. <laughs> so that's Africa, okay? That's Egypt, and then you see right above it that's all those nations that we just described. Do you see how far Elam is from the rest of these nations? Cedarview, the good news of Jesus is good because the judgment has gone, the judgment of God has gone forth in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. What was what the New Testament called Judea and Samaria was roughly equivalent with what was seen as from the previous slide, Israel in the north being Samaria and Judah in the south being Judea. Praise God. Because do you know what hope we have from the text this morning? Did you know, because I didn't, I never, or I just never considered it, that in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, that Elamites were present? They were present at Pentecost. As Kidner writes, <clears throat> the movements of peoples over the millennia make their fortunes hard to trace. But the curtain lifts an inch or two at the day of Pentecost where Elamites were found to be among the multitudes who heard the wonderful works of God in their own language, in their own tongues. Cedarview, just as judgments stretch from Judah, Israel, to the ends of the earth in our text this morning, from the people of God to the immediate neighbors to the ends of known civilization in Elam, so did the gospel of God go forth at Pentecost to the people of God in Jerusalem, to the neighboring countries and to the end of the earth, even Elam. Cedarview, just as judgment stretched across the ends of the earth, and even Elamites who thought themselves far off, salvation has been given by God's grace to those who were far off like you and I, like you and me. I'm going to read... Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 39. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain 
that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. Cedarview. Praise God that the Ammonites, the gospel goes forth to Ammonites. Edomites, the gospel goes forth to Edomites. Damascus, the gospel goes forth to the people of Damascus. Kedar and Hazor, the gospel goes forth to the people of Kedar and Hazor and Elam, even Elam, across the known world. Even those who are far off, the gospel goes forth to even the Elamites. There was no promise given in our text this morning to these nations. And yet, we see the judgment of God that went forth in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. It set the foundation for the good news that was to come. That Jesus came and preached peace to those who are near and to those who were far off. And the good news is good whether you are an Israelite or an Elamite. Praise God with me this morning. And pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you that you have brought those who are far off, like those of us in this room. The gospel has gone forth to America a landmass that was not even known to the people at Pentecost. Father, we were those who were far off, but for those of us that have repented and believed, we have seen the judgment of God, we have seen the grace of God, and that Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ, Messiah, that he sits at the right hand of the Father, that he advocates for us today, that the spirit is given to us to indwell us and who groans with words that we cannot even form. Father, thank you for your gospel. Father, we are humbled by the judgment that goes forth to sinful people. For those of us that do not know you, I pray that we would that they would be convicted, that they would see the judgment of God, and that they would flee to the protection of God. 
to the rock of ages cleft for us. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we get to pray. Amen.